0: please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts? We are in Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. That's found on page 913. But to give us context, I'm actually going to start to reading what we looked at last week, at chapter 4, verse 32, and I'm going to read from there through to 511. Because I think we need to see what we looked at last week to set up the contrast. I think Luke intentionally places these instances together so we can recognize the contrast that we see here. And this passage that we're going to look at, it is a difficult passage. It is a scary passage. It, it, it's something that we really don't expect. If you've never read the book of Acts, if you're not familiar with this story, you're going to say, what, where, where did that come from? It's something that we don't expect. And we see something that I think that we don't like. We see an aspect of, of God that we would rather not see. We see his swift and decisive judgment in this passage. And if if we're honest, it fills us with fear. It fills us with confusion. So Acts, starting at chapter 4, verse 32, going to 511. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult passage. And Lord, it is, uh, it is troubling for us. And Lord, I do pray for your spirit to be with us. I pray for your spirit to be with me, that I will rightly divide this word, rightly explain this word. And Lord, that we will hear from you. This is a message to us. And Lord, we pray that you will give us fear if we need fear, but also give us comfort as well as we look at this. And Lord, we pray as always that Jesus will be seen. And Jesus will be glorified. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is one of the most difficult passages, I think, in all of the New, New Testament. And it's really difficult on two levels. The first level is we just don't like it. We don't like what it shows. It shows immediate judgment. And it seems, if we're honest, it seems harsh. It seems too sudden. It seems completely out of proportion with the actions of, of Ananias and Sapphira. And we don't like the picture that it paints of God. Right? God seems to be moody. He seems to be unstable, unpredictable. It kind of reminds me of, of stories that I've heard of people who would grow up with an alcoholic or an abusive father. And these people would say the thing that, that was the worst part was really not the abuse. The worst part was the seemingly randomness of the abuse. Right? One day, the, the father, it could be a husband, abusive husband, may be pleasant, may be charming, may be fun-loving. But, but at a drop of a hat, it would change and, and brutally beat the child or brutally beat the wife. And, and, and the problem was they never knew what would set them off. It, it could be something seemingly innocent, something small. And this certainly this had this, this walking on, on eggshells around the father, and, it, and that was the worst part. Well, is this how it's presenting God? Is this how we see God? Is this what this, pre, this passage presents about God? Now, logically, we know this is not true. Logically, we know this is not the characteristic of God. But when we read this, this is the, the visceral response that we have of this incident. It, it, it could leave this impression. So this is the first difficulty we have with this passage. The second difficulty is, is we don't really understand what the text actually means. What is the reason that we see this judgment? Why does, what, what is Luke trying to, to have us understand about God, understand about the church, understand about ourselves from this passage? I don't think it's, it's, it's as straightforward as we might think. And we have to resist two dangers here we face when studying this passage. The first is, is we don't want to blindly accept what we think it, it, see, it says without actually understanding it and actually paint an unbiblical uh, picture of God. But also, second, we don't, we don't want to explain away the passage. We don't want to soften the passage and, and have it say something different because we don't like what it says. So our approach today, like our, our approach when we study any passage of scripture, is we first need to understand what it means. Once we understand what it means, then we can know how it applies to ourselves. And then we can commit to obeying regardless. If we understand what it's saying, and we, we trust us in the word of God, we will commit to obeying the principles it teaches. So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to ask a series of questions to help us to, to understand, to, to analyze this test, text, to understand what it's saying. And the last question is going to be, what is our application? What is the Lord trying to say to us now with this with this test? How, how is he applying it to us? So these are the first questions that we're going to answer. We're going to look at them one by one. So the questions, there's five questions we're going to answer. The first question is, what was the sin that was being judged? What was the sin? And what wasn't the sin? See, so if we miss this, we're going to get completely off track in, in, in understanding the passage and applying the passage. That's first. What is the sin? Second is, what is the role of Satan in this sin? This text actually mentions Satan in verse 3. So what did Satan actually do? How did Satan tempt him in this text? The third question is, why was this sin so dangerous to the young church? The fourth question is, related to this, is why does God judge Ananias and Sapphira so quickly, so decisively, and we even say so harshly? That's the fourth question. And lastly, the fifth question is, is what does it mean to us? What is our application today? How how does it speak to us here at this time here at Northgate? So this is the roadmap for the sermon. This is what we're going to do today. So let's, let's jump in. this first question. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? And as I mentioned, it's important for us to get this right. And it's easy, I think, at first glance, to miss what the sin was and to draw a completely erroneous conclusion about the passage. See, at first glance, we may think the sin here was a sin of greed, a sin of holding back, uh, giving the money that they had from selling this, this uh, land to the church. We think that this was their sin. But if this was the case, if this was the case, I think every one of us here would be guilty in some sense. God would strike every one of us down. I mean, I've, no, I've sold two houses in my life, and I did not give the proceeds to the church. I didn't give any of to the church. I took the money I got, and I rolled it into the next house that I bought. And I would think that that was the normal. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't people who have this type of generosity, but I think it's rare, and I don't think that's what's being judged here. In fact, Ananias and Sapphira, I think, gave much more than most of us give, right? They must have given a, a very large portion of what they what they sold, much more than they withheld, for it to even be thought of of being the entire amount. You know, for, say for example, say, say I sell a house for, for three hundred thousand dollars. If I give ten thousand dollars, no one is going to believe that that's the whole amount that I got, or to think I'm a real sucker for selling a three hundred thousand piece of property for ten thousand dollars. But say I give two seventy five or two fifty, you know, I just hold a little bit. That's that's plausible. So they must have given a, a, a large amount of this, of this property. But this is not the sin. This is not the sin, greed, or, or failing to give to the church. This is not the sin. And Peter says so much in, in verse 4, where he says, while it remained unsold. So when they still, before they sold the property, he says, was it not at your own? Did it remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter's saying the land is yours. You could have kept it, you could have sold it, and when you sold it, you could have given however much or however little you wanted to give. There was no obligation to give any of the money to the church. So the sin here is not about the money. But the money here is is an instrument. It it highlights something much deeper going on. So what was that? What was the sin? Well, we see in verse 3, verse 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now we'll look at the role of Satan in a little bit when we look at this, about the proceeds. But it appears here that the sin is that there was a sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. It was a sin of of keeping back some of the, the proceeds of the land. And implied in this statement is that Ananias and Sapphira must have claimed to have given all the money to the apostles. And I think this is confirmed in Peter's inquiry of Sapphira in, in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she so said, Yes, for so much. And I think the way Luke positions this account here, immediately following what we looked at last week in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, I think this gives us a hint at what's behind the deceit. See, Ananias and Sapphira, they saw others selling their land. They saw others bringing the money to the apostles. And I think they wanted to do, to do this as well. I think they got caught up in the moment. They got caught up in the joy and the exuberance of what was going on and, and, and seeing people giving giving and, and having such an impact of the church. And they wanted in. And I think their motives may have been pure at the time. They may have really intended to do all this and, and not to deceive anyone. They may have originally intended to give all the money from the sale. Just like the others, though, but then in the moment, then in the moment when they sold and they had the money in their hands, then a moment of weakness, they decided to, to hold back some of it. And really, this would have been fine. If they would have said, I, I can't afford to give all that. I'm going to give 80%, 50%, 20%, whatever, that would be fine. That would be right. The gift was voluntary. They could have given as much or as little as they wanted, or they didn't have to give anything. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to be seen as more generous than they actually were. They, they were caught up in the moment of in, in, in exuberance. Maybe they pledged the entire amount before they really thought it through. Maybe they, they said, yeah, we're going to give the whole thing. And then they realized, well, we have legitimate expenses and, and we need to hold back some of it to, to cover this. They may have made this pledge and then they didn't want to lose face by walking it back. Another possibility is that they, they saw the honor and the glory that was given to those who gave extravagantly. Uh, think about Barnabas. Barnabas is mentioned by name. He's called the son of encouragement. Maybe they wanted the same kind of honor. Maybe they wanted to be considered sons of encouragement themselves. Perhaps they wanted this honor, but but they didn't want to pay the price. Was this their sin? Was their sin the sin of hypocrisy? And hypocrisy is is a great sin. And Jesus himself warns the church against this type of hypocrisy. We see this in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven he goes on to say, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And then he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So it was hypocrisy. it hypocrisy? Was hypocrisy the sin that that... that Led to this uh, swift judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, perhaps, and 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 certainly, I think it was part of the sin, but I don't think it was just hypocrisy that was was being judged. In fact, you may remember Peter himself was guilty of hypocrisy. Remember, he failed to to uh, he feared the, the the members of the circumcision party, and he withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. And this is described in, in the Book of Galatians, chapter two. And he was actually rebuked by by Paul. Paul rebuked Peter. Peter repented, but there's no indication that Peter was judged. It was an immediate judge. He certainly wasn't killed, as Ananias and Sapphira were done. So I don't think this was the the, the sin. But even more importantly, this is not the reason given by Peter in verse 3. Again, verse 3, which I read a, a little while ago. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit. See, the sin seems to be that Ananias... Lied to the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't really answer the problem because what does it mean? Think about it. What does it mean to lie to the Holy Spirit? How do you lie to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God, which means God knows all things. God knows our thoughts. So if you're thinking something, you think I'm going to lie to God, He knows what you're thinking. There's no way you can lie to God. So what does it mean to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, I think we find the answer in verse four, and it may be surprising. The answer, I think, gives us insight into the essence of this sin that caused God's judgment. So take a look at verse 4. Peter says to Ananias, while it remained, the land remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And here's the important part. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. See, this is the key. They didn't lie to man, they lied to God. And this is what I think it means to lie to the Holy Spirit. See, when they lied to the apostles, when they lied to the church claiming that they gave the entire amount for the sale to the church, they weren't lying to mere men. They were lying to God. They were lying to the Holy Spirit. So here, lying to the church is actually, in fact, lying to the Holy Spirit. And I don't think they, they purposely thought this out. They didn't think they were lying to the Holy Spirit. I believe they were simply thought they were lying to Peter or lying to the apostles. Lying to mere men, but not lying to God. And I think this is, this is at the heart of their sin. So what, what they did in this lie is that they put God to the test. They put God to the test. They did not believe that God was real. They did not believe that he was involved in his church, that he was there with his church. They saw this, this amazing movement of the early church, um, fueled by the Holy Spirit, where, and they, they saw that it was just simply a human activity. It, they didn't see it as a sacredness in the church. They saw the apostles as, as mere men. And yes, they were. They were fallen, uh, sinful men. And, and in and of themselves, they're no different, certainly no better than anyone else, any of the other disciples. But what Ananias and Sapphira failed to see, and this I believe is the heart of their sin, they failed to see that Christ was present in his church. They failed to see the Holy Spirit had empowered and directed the church. See, the church was not merely a human institution. It was the very bride of Christ. The church is not something natural. The church is something supernatural. And this they failed to see. See, Peter and the apostles, in and of themselves, yes, they are mere men. But they were apostles that were appointed by God, set apart by God for service as leaders in this church. And in their role as the the Lord's anointed, they represented God. They represented God. So lying to the apostles was, in fact, lying to God's representative, lying to God himself. And this brings us now to to the second question that we have of this text. What was the role of Satan? What was the role that Satan had in this incident? So again, let's look back at at verse 3. So Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So according to, to, to Peter's question, the temptation here came through Satan. And although the effect of the, this uh, temptation was that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, I don't think that th- that was the direct temptation. I don't think Satan said, lie to the Holy Spirit. I don't think that was what it was. I think the direct temptation was for, for Ananias not to lie to the Holy Spirit, but rather to be blind, to blind to the to supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit in the church. So the the effect of this this satanic blindness is that they failed to recognize, failed to recognize that something amazing was going on, that God was actually involved in this church and lying to the apostles, God's anointed leaders in this church, was in fact lying to God himself. Satan had just blinded them to that reality. They didn't see it. They said, Satan said, they're just mere men. And Satan attempted Ananias and Sapphira basically to, to walk not by faith, but to walk by sight. The temptation, it could be something like this. You know, don't get too carried away with, with, with giving all this money to the apostles. Right? They, they don't need all of it. You should keep some of it for yourself. You have, you have legitimate needs, legitimate uses of this money, and nobody will know. Yeah, you, you promise to give the whole thing, but if, if you give 90%, if you give 80%, no one's really going to know. Just tell them you give them the, the whole thing. They'll never know. They don't need to know. And Satan's strategy here is to take our eyes off of God and put them on ourselves, on our own needs, And he deceives us into into thinking that we can't trust God. That we we, we cannot trust his word. That we must first trust ourselves. We must look to ourselves. And isn't this Satan's strategy? We see the Satan's strategy all the way back to the garden. All the way back to the beginning. What was Satan's first temptation? Our first parents in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say? It's implying that you really can't trust God. You can't trust his words. It's better to trust your own senses, trust what you see, trust what you can figure out. This is Satan's, this is Satan's strategy. And he still uses it today. He uses it on us today, implying that we cannot trust uh, we cannot trust God's word. And we see Satan's same strategy when he tempts Jesus in our in our gospel reading that we heard. Right? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's implying that God's word that was spoken at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's implying that you can't believe that you're not really God's son. Satan's basically saying, Jesus, you can't trust your father. You can't. You have to take care of yourself. You have to use your power to, to take the matters into your own hand and turn these stones into bread. This is the way Satan operates. And Satan's temptation to Ananias is, you can't trust God to provide for you. You sell your land, you have nothing. You give it all to the apostles, you're going to be out on the street. You won't be able to take care of yourself. You must hold some back. You've got to trust yourself. You've got to trust what you can see. Trust in this money. In addition, Satan probably even tempted them to some jealousy. Uh, probably tempted them to, to, to the hypocrisy of, of, of looking, at, an envy of looking at, the, at the Barnabas. Tempting to want the honor. You know, why does Barnabas get this? You deserve what he gets. Everyone's saying how great he is, and that he's the son of encouragement. You could be saying the same thing. That's what Satan is. That's what Satan is tempting them to do. And Satan's temptation is basically for us to believe God, not to trust the testimony of the Holy Spirit, either the testimony of the Holy Spirit that is found in God's Word, or through the miraculous healings and the miraculous generosity that was witnessed among the disciples. And this unbelief—what this unbelief is—is is putting God to the test. And this is exactly what Peter says to Sapphira in, in uh, verse 9. This Verse 9 says, But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? See, they put the Lord to the test by failing to recognize that he is real. By failing to recognize that he is present in his church, that he is holy, that he is the Spirit of truth himself, and that he expects truthfulness among his people. That's how they put him to the test. And this is the same attitude that, we, that we've seen in our Old Testament reading that, that Nathan read for from us from, from Exodus 17. See, the people had put God to the test. They're in the, they're in the desert. They see God's miraculous provision for them. They saw God parting the, the, the Red Sea so they can pa- pass on dry land. They saw this pillar of, of cloud and, and, and pillar of fire directing them through the wilderness. Every day they received manna from heaven to survive. To feed them. And now they don't think they're going to have water. Now they don't think that they can trust God for, for water. They don't trust God. They put, their tr- they, they put the Lord to the test. As, as the pastor says, they say, Is the Lord really among us? They see all this evidence and they still don't trust it. They put the Lord to the test. Now, not, they, are they not just like Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira, they saw the miracles of the speaking in tongues, they saw the healing that John and Peter did at the temple. They saw the supernatural acts of generosity. They saw the absence of need and poverty among the disciples. They may even see the the ascension of Jesus himself into heaven. But did they trust that God was among his people? Did they trust that he was active in his church? No. They put the Lord to the test. This brings us now to our third question. Why is this putting the Lord to the test? Why is this sin so dangerous? And I think the answer is because the essence of the sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed, the essence of putting the Lord to the test, is really a spirit of unbelief. They didn't believe that God was real. Sin, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was unbelief. They failed to recognize that the Holy Spirit was active and present in the church. They saw the church as, in essence, a human institution. So when lying to the apostles, they didn't recognize that they were lying to God himself. They didn't believe that it was all true. They didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was, in fact, the author of the miracles that they saw. They were functional atheists. And here's the the danger to the early church. See, the mighty working of, of the Holy Spirit was causing a lot of action, was causing a lot of excitement in the early church. And they were experiencing, really, the, the Spirit's supernatural joy. It, it must have been a, a, an amazing, beautiful place that they were. They were enjoying the, the supernatural fact that there was not a, a needy person among them. And this would have gotten the people's attention. Many people would have wanted to be part of this community for no other reason. they said, there's no needy people among them. If I go there, I will not be needy as well. And the problem is, The problem is that these people would have wanted to be part of this community. They would have wanted to be part of the church, not because they believed the gospel, not because the Holy Spirit had regenerated them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not because they were new creations in Christ, not because they were citizens of the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of man. No, the very real danger to the fledgling church was that people would join the church for these temporal benefits for the peace, for the joy, for the prosperity, for the power, but never, ever really being converted. And do you see what a disaster, what a disaster that would be? This would corrupt the church. It would dilute the purity. It would cause it to be a mixture of, of the holy and the profane. You remember, the church had a mission. They had a job given to them directly by Jesus himself. You remember what that was? I mention this every sermon. It's it's the theme verse of Acts. Acts 1.8. You guys are going to have it memorized before we are done with this series. Acts 1.8 says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is the the function of the church. That's the mission, to be Jesus' witnesses. Well, how could a church filled with unbelievers be their witnesses? Filled with those who just wanted the benefits of God, but did not have the Holy Spirit. Did not believe the gospel? How could this corrupt church, how could it fulfill this church? How, how could it fulfill this verse? What type of witnesses would they have been? They would have been false witnesses. And this is the danger that Ananias and Sapphira's sin posed to this young and fragile church. It's actually, its very mission was at risk. And this now brings us to the fourth question. Why did God judge this sin so quickly and so decisively? And the answer is because this sin had the potential to completely undermine the mission of the young church. And this judgment, I think this judgment, far from showing God as an unstable, temperamental tyrant, it actually shows him as a loving and protective shepherd, guarding his sheep from ravenous wolves, protecting them. See, this unbelief, it had to be stopped. It had to be stopped quickly, it had to be stopped decisively before it took hold of the church, undermining the church's mission. So God graciously protects his people from this destructive heresy, from getting itself into the church, this heresy of unbelief. So the judgment here, the judgment of the immediate death, I think even in itself is instructive. And this we need to remember that the book of Acts is is a transitional book. It transitions between how God dealt with his people during the Old Testament period and how he deals with his people now during the the church age. See, in the Old Testament, God dealt very directly. uh, Spiritual realities were basically played out in the physical realm. So the the spiritual blessings related to the covenant faithfulness to God, they were displayed in the Old Testament by physical blessings of his people. To To put it crudely, if you obeyed God, God blessed you. If you didn't obey God, you got punished. That was the way he dealt with them in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it wasn't quite the same. In the New Testament, the spiritual blessings are, and in the church even today, that's, that, that's the problem that we have with the, with the health and wealth gospel. That's not the way God operates today. The blessings are not closely, the spiritual blessings are not closely related to physical blessings. Actually, many of the most spiritually faithful churches experience the most physical persecution. I mean, think of the martyrs. The, the apostles themselves, 11 out of the 12 were, died martyrs' deaths. How is this seen Is they they were the most faithful, but they had the most suffering from a temporal perspective. So things are different in the New Testament. But the book of Acts, this is a transitional book. So we see a, a tighter connection between the physical and the spiritual. So the immediate and definitive death sentence experienced by Ananias and Sapphira for their sin of unbelief, what this gives us is a picture of the spiritual consequences of unbelief. This is a, a picture of the spiritual consequences of unbelief. And what is the consequences? It is spiritual and eternal death. So the harsh physical consequences of unbelief provide here a warning, a warning for the infinitely worse spiritual consequences of unbelief, and that is the eternal torments of hell. So this judgment here is, immediate, is meant to immediately get the attention of the church. It is to get them to realize the horrible consequences of failing, uh, of failing to believe, of falling for Satan's temptations that this is just natural, that the church is just a normal human institution and God is not present. The text tells us in verses 5 and, and verse 11 that great fear, great fear came upon the whole church. And this incident here was a wake-up call, a wake-up call to the church about the danger Of unbelief. See the peace, the joy, the unity of the early church. This was real. This was exciting. This was a tremendous blessing. But this joy wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to prepare the church for the persecutions that were to come. They needed Christ. They needed to trust in Him. They needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way they could survive. See, an empty faith attracted only to the blessings, but not supernaturally converted by the Holy Spirit, it is useless. And my friends, this is as true for us today as it was for them. And this brings us to our last question. What is our application? What is the application of this passage today? Well, i have got three brief applications. And the first is it's not about money. It's not about money. Don't let this cause you to fear that if you don't have the same radical generosity, if your finances are difficult and you can't give like Barnabas give, that you're in trouble. That's not what this is about at all. The Holy Spirit certainly does give people a, a gift of generosity, a tremendous gift of generosity. But it's never based on fear. It's never based on fear. It's never motivated on guilt that I have to give. No. Rather, it's, it's built on gratitude. It's built on joy. You love to give. You, go, you give because you can't outgive the Lord. Scripture tells us the, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So first, uh, is, it's not about money. But second, there's a bigger danger. There's a bigger danger. That we face, and that danger is unbelief. <clears throat> now, this is related to giving, right? A person who who trusts God <clears throat> for his security, a person who understands that the church is, is both the bride of Christ, that is a supernatural entity, this person will naturally be generous. But it is a secondary application. Is the, the real problem is the faith, not the giving? We need to understand. We need to understand that God is real, and we must walk by faith, not by sight. And walking by sight. We'll put God to the test. We'll display a lack of belief. And when we do this, we act no differently than the unbelievers. That's the real problem. We're supposed to be his witnesses, but when we walk by sight, we are no different than the unbelievers. And this causes us to to fail to fulfill our calling to be Christ's witnesses. So that's our second application. Our third application is we must understand that Christ's church is not merely a human institution. What we are here today, this is supernatural. The Holy Spirit is here with us. He directs the church, and the Holy Spirit has anointed leaders. Next week, we're going to have a congregational meeting. We are going to vote in on leaders, elder and a deacon. The Holy We trust the Holy Spirit is actually the one who's raised them up, and the church is just recognizing the leaders that he has chosen for his church. And leaders that are duly elected and examined and ordained, they represent Christ. And lying to the church, lying to these leaders, in a sense, lying to God. And my friends, this passage should get our attention. It should scare us, really. It should scare us into taking God seriously, to trust his word, to trust his means of grace. We are going to be celebrating means of grace. All of what I've said now applies to the Lord's Supper too. If we see this as merely a a superstition we do, we're missing the point. We are missing the point. We are are to cling to Christ. We are to trust that he is real, that he's working in his church. And we are to walk by faith. And we are to resist the devil. And we will not. And when we resist the devil, we trust in Christ. We cling to Christ. We will not put God to the test. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do need you. We do need Christ, Lord, because we are all tempted to putting you to the test. And I pray, Father, I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that you will strengthen our faith, strengthen that we will trust in you, that you will become more real to us than all those outward distractions. There are many outward distractions that we have fighting for our time, fighting for our allegiance. But Lord, we pray that you will become more real. I pray you will do that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you will become more real to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.